0: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show to everyone in the United States and to everyone around the world. We have 17 countries with listening audiences from China to South Korea, to Australia. And I always say, I don't care if it's one person, one, one of you in a country, you can make a difference, that one person can make a difference. So don't forget about that. Hey, Yoshiko Dart, a special shout out to you, Yoshiko. You know how I love you. And then to Richard Roberts from the State Department to Cheryl Harris in Tunisia, Gang Young in South Korea, uh, my friend in in uh, Kazakhstan, Venyamin, to all of you everywhere, thank you for fighting the fight for people with disabilities. And speaking of someone that has been fighting the fight, you know, I'm bias, because I'm going to tell you how much I love this guest before he's introduced to you, but that is because, you know, he's just a fabulous, brilliant human being that is really, really walks the walk, talks the talk, lives disability himself, and helps people throughout the world, and that would be the assistant vice chancellor of research for STEM, Health Sciences Collaboration at the University of Pittsburgh, author and internationally known. Welcome to the show, Rory.
2: Well, thank you, Joyce. It's a pleasure to be back on your show. I always love to talk with you and spend time with you. And um, I'm looking forward to talking again today.
1: Well, uh, and by the way, for everyone, I call him, uh, Rory, but so you all know, it's Dr. Cooper. But anyway, Rory, when I was looking through your accomplishments, oh my goodness! I mean, there are so many. I didn't know what to. I didn't know which thing to talk about. Um, it is so ov- overwhelming how many accomplishments and awards you have. But for our listeners that do not know you. How about if we start with your story, you know, how did you become involved in the disability community, where did you grow up, Uh, and how did you move on into this advocacy role?
2: Uh, That's a great question, I mean, as you know, uh, it's, um, it's it's easy to join the disability community, but it can be rather painful. And abrupt. Um, I uh, I acquired a spinal cord injury and, and other injuries while I was serving with the U.S. Army in Europe, and I um, I uh, was struck by a, a a truck while I was riding my bicycle as, while doing physical training. Um, and um, and from then I uh, you know I had to learn to live a new life uh, using a wheelchair and other forms of assistive technology. But uh, I was uh, fortunate that my girlfriend at the time and now my wife of nearly 40 years, um, Rosa Marie, stuck with me, and, uh, and we built a wonderful life together. Um, I got involved in advocacy um, at first by accident, uh, mainly because uh, when I was first injured, it was prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the world was not terribly accessible or terribly friendly towards people with disabilities. And um, it didn't really make sense to me. Uh, but I got formally introduced to advocacy uh, by our mutual friend, uh, Judy Human, oh, who at the time, to give you a little bit about dating myself, was um, one of the leaders of, the, of CAF, California Association of the physically handicapped and um, and I went to uh, I got invited by a friend who wanted to go to one of their meetings and uh, and Judy uh, convinced me that uh, not only should I pursue my uh, um, interest in in college and engineering and in my interest in sports but that um those of us have the ability that have the ability also have the obligation to advocate for the through um, the rights and for the inclusion of people with disabilities.
1: You know, she she is just what can I say? She's the history. She's history. She's uh, an author. Uh, the you know the movie Crip Camp. So many things and. Uh, Actually, I have a painting in my office uh, from Time Magazine of Judy when she was, uh, you know, in reference to Crip Camp. And it is just amazing how much she has done. She's a great friend, but she has changed the world, no no doubt about it. And she's very uh, persuasive, so I can see what happened there. It would be like you had no... No choice if Judy's asking you to do something. So then, Rory, how did you get to the University of Pittsburgh?
2: So I uh, I got there in a rather sur- circuitous way. Um, so I uh, when I was first graduate from college, I was offered a uh, faculty position at California State University in Sacramento, And I was also offered a postdoc by the uh, VA Rehabilitation Research and Development Center at the Heinz VA in Illinois. And I managed to work out a deal to do both. So I worked with uh, Charlie Robinson and John Trimble as my mentors at the VA Rehabilitation Research Development Center in Hines, while uh, pursuing a faculty position in biomedical engineering at California State University in Sacramento, and um, and Charlie Robinson moved from um, Illinois to the University of Pittsburgh and the VA Pittsburgh Healthcare System and was the first chair of the Department of Rehabilitation Science and Technology. And um, he uh, he proposed to the then Dean Cliff Brubaker and uh, and then Senior Vice Chancellor for Health Science at this time, Tom Detry, to uh, recruit me to um, help with the uh, help establish the Department of Rehabilitation Science and Technology, and to build a center that uh, was a joint collaboration between the University of Pittsburgh and the VA. And so, um, uh, yeah, Charlie uh, convinced, uh, actually convinced Rosie and I to, to move from uh, California to, uh, to Pittsburgh and uh, it, was, uh, it was a rather interesting inter- interview process at the time. I was reading the book, The Firm, and it felt a lot by John Grisham, and it felt a lot like that. Uh, uh, Charlie and Dean Brubaker and Dr. Detry and, uh, um, the, and the chancellor at the time and all kinds of you know, sports medicine he pulled out all the stops to, uh, to make people feel like, to make us feel like Pittsburgh would be the place for us to, uh, to go. So, um, of course we met with the VA leadership in, in Pittsburgh as well. And, uh, and we were able to, um, to work out a deal. And from that, uh, uh I came to, Rosie and I came to Pittsburgh and, uh, Hurl was born and, and, uh, Basically, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's been uh, and it's been a rapid uh, rapid rapid growth uh, uh, ever since then.
1: Oh, it has! It's so premier, so premier. Where where did you grow up then, Roy? Where 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 was your where did you grow up as a child?
2: Um, so uh, this is a little unique bit of trivia, but I uh, I was born in East LA, and I lived there uh, for first five years of my life, and then uh, we moved to Riverside, California, which is in, in the uh, in the desert east of Los Angeles for a little while, uh, and then uh, when I was ten, we moved to San Luis Obispo, California, and I. Kind of called I basically call that my hometown, um, but and uh, uh, that uh, I lived there until I was seventeen, and then at that time I joined the army as a young enlisted soldier, and um, spent a little time training in the United States, but most of my time in the army was spent uh, spent in Germany during the Cold War. Uh, right at the uh, right at the I was at the back end of the Folder Gap, which, if you know the Cold War, that was one of the places that we thought the Russians would come through Europe if they chose to uh, chose to be aggressive. So, um, yeah, and uh, I am a graduate of uh, California Polytechnic State University, a bachelor's and master's degree there, uh, both in engineering. And then um, I worked for a few years for Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which um, some of you have probably heard about it in the news, and uh, while I was there, um, my faculty advisors from Cal Poly um, convinced me that I might be, and I looked for some other jobs and and uh, several of the people I was interviewing had recommended that I pursue a Ph.D. given my career interests, and so I uh, I applied for and was accepted. Uh, to the University of California at Santa Barbara uh, where I earned my PhD working with uh Stephen Horvath and and Brad Riedel, and uh among other other people and uh it was um, it's a good experience and I also um <laughs> I think uh today much to my own surprise certainly at that time to my professor's surprise I uh I was training for the uh, Paralympic Games at the same time as pursuing my PhD, and I managed to uh, compete in the Paralympic Games in 1988, earn a bronze medal, represent the United States of America, and in 1989 graduate with my PhD. And uh, wow. then I went to Sacramento, and then five years later came to Pittsburgh.
1: Thank goodness for Charlie. Getting you to move from California to Pittsburgh, let it, let alone, did you know you were going to the best city in the United States? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, <laughs> where I also uh, live and grew up. Well, what a story. And you do have a book. You wrote a book.
2: I've written several books, actually. Well, uh, all book. of them are textbooks, though. Well, um, I've written... My first book was uh, Rehabilitation Engineering uh, focused on mobility and manipulation. Uh, My goal there was to write the first engineering textbook in rehabilitation engineering. Um, My second book was on uh, wheelchair selection and configuration. Um, And then um, I've edited several books uh, since then as well. My most recent one was... uh, Actually, uh, uh, reintegration for war-injured soldiers.
1: Hmm. Well, you are, remember what I said when I read your uh, background? Wow, you have done a lot in your young life. And I want everyone to know that uh, Rehab Technology Center that we're talking about is premier. It is premier and is known internationally. Actually, Rory is because no matter where I am, if I say Rory Cooper, oh yes, we know Dr. Cooper. So, uh, what you have accomplished so much, more importantly, done so much, so much to impact the lives, Rory, of people with disabilities. But at what I love at uh, the work you do is. That at the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, and with this work you're doing, what is your emphasis on STEM?
2: So, uh, my emphasis on STEM is because, um, first, I'm an engineer, and uh, when I, um, unfortunately, when I look around my field at conferences and uh, and, you know, professional meetings and things. I just don't see a lot of people like myself or other people with disabilities there. And, um, it's, and it, and the, but I think it's a re- rewarding career opportunity, uh, for people, for everyone, but also, uh, especially for people with disabilities. Choices, as you know, employment is a, is essential to, or integration and full participation of people with disabilities and, um, and but it's still very difficult to uh, find uh, to attain a living wage to have a career, have a professional career um, and I, and we're highly under uh, people with disabilities are highly underrepresented in STEM and um, so I, I think it's a, a real opportunity, uh, especially the other thing is a lot of people with disabilities. Um, are very technically savvy by by their own necessity. I mean, that's essentially in some ways how I developed my career was uh, trying to invent devices for myself and for my friends and, of course, my network of friends expanded the type of devices that I started working on expanded as well. But... Um, it's even in you know a lot of the technologies that benefit people with disabilities benefit everyone and uh, be, as mainstream technologies and so that's uh, I also think that that science and technology and engineering are all are better if uh, if we have diversity of experiences and thought and diversity in all of its forms because uh, the best way to solve a problem is uh, often to look at it from multiple perspectives, which, interestingly enough, is taught very early on in engineering education, but not necessarily in the thought about diversity um, from a human perspective. But uh, you know, they, I, I'm sure uh, for those of you who are listeners who are. Uh, scientists or engineers, and we, it's uh, um, mathematicians and engineers discovered over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, even more, uh, that you could solve a problem in, in like, for example, in the time domain, you could transfer it to the frequency domain and maybe go from calculus to algebra and it was a much more solvable problem. I sort of view diversity in the same way, that if, if you have Diverse if you tra- look at di- from a different domain perspective, different life perspective, different experience perspective, then um, you might come up with uh, better solutions or, or solutions that are simpler. And so that, uh, that also encouraged me to, uh, to explore how we could get more people with disabilities in STEM. And then I discovered that you really have to, you have to really go back to middle school in some ways because uh, that's often where um, students with disabilities uh, either lose interest in or, or are discouraged, uh, maybe less discouraged, but more encouraged to pursue other, other areas of study or other career paths and, uh, and, lose, their, uh, and lose touch with the STEM fields. Um, but also, it's unfortunately, the problem tend to continue at the undergraduate level and graduate level. I was recently just asked to chair the uh, National Academies Committee on how to make uh, laboratories, field accessories, and computational software more accessible to people with disabilities, which um, that's kind of one of the barriers. You can get into STEM fields, but if you can't... If you become a note taker, observer, or uh, you're asked to just, you know, have a, or not participate in those experiences, you can't get the full perspective and the full education that you might need to be successful. So that, um, you know, largely that, that motivated me, uh, you know, partially, um, you know, to be, uh, you know, honest, you, you learn some of those values early on, and uh, I learned some of those values early when I was the Boy Scouts and earned the rank of Eagle Scout. And then later in the Army, uh, especially when I went to the non-commissioned officers academy, you um, you, you learn about uh, selfless service and paying forward. And I saw I this as an opportunity where I could contribute beyond my individual engineering and scientific talents.
1: Wow. That is wonderful. Well, that's just you. That's what I'm talking about when I said that. May I ask now what you're working on? Would that be the curriculum that you'd be doing this with? What would you be doing that with?
2: So with the National Academies Committee, we're right now, so I have developed curricula, and, and, um, and as you know, that uh, there's a, there's a lot of diversity within disability itself and a lot of intersectionality, you know, you and I are both examples of that, right? You're a woman, and you have a disability, and I'm a veteran, and I have a disability. And so um, that you have to try to keep in, you know, we have to look at that. And and then, of course, there are different learning styles. There are people that are, you know, start out at acquired disabilities with adults, and the sort of adult learners as they have to... um, Uh, update their training or retrain. And so, uh, but what we're doing at the National Academies is actually a series of listening tours Uh, because I don't profess to be the expert on all matters STEM or all matters on inclusion in STEM, and I probably wouldn't trust anybody who claimed to have those abilities. And as you know, the best way to find out how to move forward is to listen to people um, those people that have found ways to um, adapt or found institutions who are willing to uh, uh, make accommodations and find out what those best practices are, and at the same time to find people who are um, a run-up against barriers that if they've either surmounted or they found insurmountable, and find out if there's ways to overcome them or at least... Uh, uh, earmark them to, to study in the future and also to get gain the experiences of people who are going through the process um, currently. So, um, you know, that, that's, the, that, that's typically how good science is done, right? You, um, I'll, I'll quote Albert Einstein, right? He, he was once asked if you had an hour uh, to save the world, what would you do? And he would said, I would spend 59 minutes sol- uh, defining the problem and one minute solving it. And so uh, I think what we have to truly do is sort of define the problem. Uh, I, I, I use the term barriers and facilitators. What are the barriers? What are the facilitators? And then we can, um, then we can start to look for solutions, which, by the way, is – is a technique that engineering and physicists use all the time, and we're taught taught in school, right? You what what is known, what is unknown, and what are the assumptions.
1: And you know, so like, that's
2: the approach we're taking.
1: Well, that is a you know what that applies to so many things. That really does because uh, I'll go around and I'll talk to executive level people in the business world and my question always is why do you think people don't hire people with disabilities you know unfortunately it seems like everyone says the same thing lack of understanding but I also know there's more involved but I, I think that is really great you know what you're doing uh, because how can you know what to do if you don't listen so that that's very exciting and with that On the half hour, which are a couple of minutes early, but that's okay. We have our news break with Perry Jude Radisic, who is the CEO of Disability Rights of PA, and just an all-around great human being. Perry, welcome to the show. Joyce, thank you, and we're excited about the news today. Well, we're excited to hear you.
0: So, here's what's happening. Uh, the National Council on Disability, and I'll tell you about the National Council on Disability in a moment, have announced the date and time of their next quarterly meeting. Now, the council is going to meet this Thursday, October 7th, from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Now, the council meeting is going to take place over Zoom, so any disability advocate can join the Zoom meeting or use the Zoom telephone number and passcode associated with Zoom. So registration, you don't have to register, but the National Council on Disability is asking people to register to come to the meeting. They're going to provide uh, American Sign Language and CART, so that's already all been arranged for the meeting. So who is the National Council on Disability? Well, it's an independent Federal agency that advises federal agencies, Congress, and the President on issues impacting people with disabilities. So you could see how important they really are to people with disabilities in the country. Now, I'll give you an example of of some work the Council is currently working on. The Council is out there right now seeking proposals on a new notice of funding opportunity for a 2022 progress report. On environmental injustice and by that they mean the impact of the increased frequency of extreme weather events on people with disabilities so the council is out there they're ready to fund someone to go do this work to look at how the frequency of extreme weather is impacting people with disabilities very important if you want a link to that notice of funding opportunity go to our website at disabilityrightspa.org, that's .org, and you can click on today's Advocacy Matters segment and find a link to that Notice of Funding Opportunity. While you're there, you you may also want to check out the agenda for the council meeting. That's been released, so go to disabilityrightspa.org and go to Advocacy Matters and find the agenda. It's a full agenda and it includes an update on public policy, voting rights, progress reports on COVID-19, climate change, state advocacy highlights, and so much more. There's even an opportunity for public comment. So the National Council on Disabilities welcomes public comment from anyone, individuals, businesses, providers, educators, parents, and advocates, and they can receive this public comment email. You can email them, or you can request a moment during the Zoom meeting uh, there near the end uh, to provide your public comment. So advocacy matters. Check out the National Council on Disability and their quarterly meeting. Learn more about their national policy activities on Thursday. And be sure you visit disabilityrightspa.org if you're able to put in a proposal for their uh, notice of funding opportunity. Thanks, Joyce.
1: Uh, Okay, that's... uh disabilityrightsofpa.org. Uh, Perry, what, what for our listeners, what do they mean by this environmental? What do they mean?
0: Yes, environmental injustice. So this is what they mean. It, we're all experiencing climate change. Even here in Pennsylvania, we've experienced Hurricane Ida, and we still have uh, a disaster recovery centers open in places like York Philadelphia, Bucks County, so, so it created, you know, having hurricanes come up into places maybe they haven't been before or been with such frequency uh, is due to climate change, and so they want to study this frequency of these extreme weather events and its impact on people with disabilities. It's another kind of emergency preparedness work, so that's what that's about.
1: Well, wow, and it does impact so much. I was reading an article, you know about how this impacts uh, people with disabilities and people in poverty. So that that is environmental injustice that is really uh, something that we all have to keep on our radar and realize the negative impact of it. so i'm I'm really glad you brought this up. And once again, you can go to your website advocacy matters and get this link that's great yes well thank, well, you, thank you thank you very much uh perry jude we look forward to hearing you next week absolutely take care wow that's a thing huh rory
2: yeah that's pretty amazing um about to think about uh, maybe applying we uh Hurl's done quite a bit of work related to COVID uh, nineteen emergency in uh, the emergency response, so maybe we can help out.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, you'll have to check that out. Uh, I'm really yeah. glad that she she does such a great job every week. She does such a great job. Uh, so, Rory, over the years, because boy doesn't time go fast, how have you seen the development of this school of work? Uh, of health and rehab over the years?
2: Uh, well, uh, probably the most amazing thing is the growth that uh, I've seen in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, and and actually its, it's impact um, across the university for that matter. You know, uh, just to think about the, um, well, of course, you know, Dick Thornburg is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he also passed away this year, another icon in the disability rights movement. And, um, you know, he yeah, had Dick and Ginny Thornburg uh, created the uh, Thornburg Lecture Series that is a uh, partnership with the uh, School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, School of Law, the Institute for Politics, and um, School of Business, and then, um, you know, that's... That's been something that's occurred in that time frame. Our good friend Kate Seelman was the driving force behind that. Um, later, uh, also, the um, now, uh, you know, they, uh, it's about three years old now, that Chancellor uh, Gallagher created the Chancellor's Advisory Committee on Accessibility and Inclusion of, of People with Disabilities at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, there are now three... Uh, a full-time executive staff uh, dedicated to, uh, in the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, that are dedicated to uh, people with disabilities, which is also pretty remarkable. One for software, uh, one to, uh, uh, for accommodations for students, and one for accommodations for uh, for faculty and staff, which, you know, I'm very proud that, that I was able to drive that. Um, also, um, we uh, the Office of Veterans Services was created, which was largely driven by the the influx of uh, post 9/11 veterans and their um, and their family members. So, and the needs to uh, and that you know, I was very proud to work with at uh, that time the uh, Chief of Staff, Randy Clark, uh, to I uh, was a, a Vietnam era Army veteran himself uh, who. Um, they will drive that that process and it's had a remarkable impact on the on the region um and uh you know our good friend uh, Linda dickerson who passed away this year uh you know um, linda uh, of the school uh, myself included uh worked with linda in the 1990s to establish the city county task force on people with disabilities, which uh, continues to affect our region, our region today. Uh, so, um, and then, you know, uh, um, we've got some really remarkable uh, alumni who have uh, gone on to uh, change uh, the region and as well as change uh, change the nation. Uh, first, one of them. You know, uh, you and I both know very well Jamie Protho, who has gone on to do very well and be become pretty influential, uh, despite his uh, poor taste in football teams. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh.
1: that's, that's the truth. I Every time I describe Jamie, I'll say, he really only has one disability. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. That's his real disability. Yes, we know.
2: Very successful. But uh, you yeah, so uh, know, what's probably remarkable is uh, is that uh, I think starting with the school, it's changed. I think changed the university, uh, all, the culture of the university as a whole. but and 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 by extensions, um, I would say amplified the work that was being done in the community because there's been some great. Leaders like yourself in the disability rights movement for for decades, uh, and, and you know I know can name a number of other people as well. And uh, so I think that, uh, but I think what, what's nice is that there's a there's kind of an academic home and partnership uh, for uh, disability advocates in the region, and a way to um, to create them. Uh, for the uh, nationally and internationally, for that matter, you know, for example, yes. one of our alumni is uh, Dr. Jongbae Kim, who is a spinal cord injury and power wheelchair user, who is a professor at Yonsei University in Korea, and was on the uh, the organizing committee for the Olympics and Paralympics, the Winter Olympics and Paralympics in Pyongyang, in uh, Korea a few years ago, and he was a strong advocate to make sure that all of the venues and all of the ethnic villages were accessible. And I had the the honor and privilege of going over there and and uh, being part of the delegation to the uh, to the games and uh, spending time with Jeong Bay, and it was just so wonderful to see uh, the impact that he had had on. On his university, but on the Olympic and the Paralympic movement as well. So it's it's really it's uh it's it's wonderful what the uh, what uh, the impact that the University of Pittsburgh has had uh, regionally, nationally, and globally. And uh, it's and what's really important is and doing that in partnership with with yourself and and uh, and so many other people. Uh, as well in the advocacy community, as you know, um, you know. For example, we mentioned G. HUMAN earlier. Um, uh, Kate and I nominated her to be one of the first Thornburg Lecture uh, recipients and give the Thornburg Lecture. And then um, this year, actually, I nominated uh, Judy, and she received an honorary doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh and spoke at commencement.
1: Oh, that is so awesome. Well, you know, I love her so much. I really do. Yes, I was very honored to be a speaker also at the uh, Thornburg Lecture Series. And that was, truthfully, one of my greatest honors. It really was. Uh, what a great person we lost with Dick Thornburg, I mean, just such a great person he is, uh, and with the impact he had, even with the ADA, phenomenal. So, uh, Rory, what are you doing right now? Like, what are some of the key projects you want our listeners to know about?
2: Well, um, I, I, well two things. Uh, I was recently served on a National Academies report that uh, was just released. And is available on the National Academy's website. Looking at the uh, feasibility of individuals being able to uh, stay seated in their wheelchair while flying on commercial aircraft.
0: Wow. And as you know,
2: the ability that did uh, also the uh, you know the Air Carrier Transportation Act is having its. Uh, I'm not sure which. Trying to get an idea what what anniversary it is, but it's uh, it's having a major anniversary this year. Let's see, uh, 35th anniversary of the ACA, and so I think that that report was very timely to come out at that t- You know, to come out just a few weeks ago, um, it was uh, actually uh, interesting enough. It was initiated uh, in the Senate by a. A friend of mine, uh, probably a mutual friend of ours, uh, Tammy Duckworth.
1: Oh, I love
2: her. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know that. And as you know, the ability to travel uh, on airlines impacts people's ability to access healthcare, uh, uh, to participate in employment, and and to uh, to be active with their uh, their families and friends. Right? Just is. You know, it could be anything from uh, somebody like myself or yourself that needs to travel to uh, participate in professional meetings, uh, uh, but also, uh, you know, travel to uh, visit family and or, or go on vacation. And in some cases, it means access to specialized health care. So that's something that uh, that that is clearly an initial report. I hope that there will be. Um, Be follow-ups, and we can continue to uh, use the football term, move the ball down the field. Um, So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about this new committee to help uh, at least start, also start the ball, moving the ball down the field with the uh, increasing, the at least gaining the knowledge for how to make STEM programs more accessible, especially labs and field work and software. Um, And then, of course, I'm still actively involved as an inventor. And uh, part of the one of the exciting kind of new directions I've taken is is, uh, last year, uh, Hurl was awarded the Department of Transportation Center, University Transportation Center on uh, Accessible Autonomous Vehicles and Transportation Systems. As we move forward towards electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and transportation systems, They have tremendous opportunities to um, reduce the barriers to transportation, which are key to to help to work to participation. Um, And uh, and so we're leading that effort. And so that's uh, that's to me is really exciting. And hopefully we can um, provide information that will uh, help transform. Uh, the automotive industry and transportation industry to be even more accessible to people with disabilities, uh, driven by uh, the experiences and knowledge uh, of people with disabilities.
1: Do you have information that the public can see about this or not?
2: Um, so, yes. Um, actually, the easiest way to see all of that is to follow me on LinkedIn. I am uh, I'm a regular. I regularly post. So our uh, work on, on my the work on both of those projects is posted on my LinkedIn page. It's also posted on our HURL website, which is uh, simply h e r l dot p i t t dot edu.
1: Probably easiest to find it on LinkedIn since everyone uses that. So uh, I mean, because I think that is so important. How many people do I know? that use a wheelchair that would do not want to travel by plane oh and when judy Yemen came here to speak on the way back they broke her wheelchair so i mean but there are so many people that do have issues so i think that's so great that you're working on that and um Kelly Buckland is now with the Department of Transportation as an Assistant Policy Director, so I'm sure he'll be interested in also on what you're doing. So I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, what what tell us about your involvement again with the Paralympics?
2: That uh, well, that's, that's great. Um, so I guess my involvement with the Paralympics started as an athlete um, I had the good fortune to representing the u s team and even being a team captain uh on a one international team um, and setting a world record being the world champion then went out to the Paralympics and uh won a won a bronze medal and then i uh i got i got roped into um Uh, applying my scientific and engineering knowledge. What's probably a little uh, few people know know is that my dissertation was related to uh, uh, wheelchair racing and modeling of wheelchair racing and design of better racing wheelchairs. Um, So I've had a long time there. Uh, I served in many roles. Currently I serve in two roles. I serve on the... um, International Paralympic Committee Task Force on um, on Science and Technology, which is uh, a global initiative to improve the science behind the Paralympics and the technology behind the Paralympics, including um, all aspects from classification to um, equipment used by, by coaches, by athletes, competition equipment, uh, as well as uh, equity, uh, how the Paralympics are perceived, very broad-ranging committee. I'm also currently serving on the uh, Paralympic VISTA Conference Steering Committee. Vis- the VISTA Conference is the com- biannual conference, so I held every two years, uh, to give. Uh, uh, that's globally held. Uh, one of the cool things that the Paralympics does is the um, the conference is free to any athlete who has competed in the Paralympics and also uh, the uh, price of, of participating in the conference is based, uh, uh, varies depending on your, uh, the World Health Organization uh, region that you live in. So we try to make it affordable for all and, and make it more representative. Uh, that, so that's kind of exciting. I've been doing that probably for I've been about doing both of those for about five, six years now. Um, and uh, except outside of COVID, normally I would get to attend the Paralympic Games uh, to observe the advances in technology and and uh, those areas where people might be uh, pushing pushing the limits of uh, our, our current interpretation of the rules, uh, and looking at opportunities for expanding the sport. Uh, the other thing that I'm interested in is related to the Paralympics, too, is uh, is um, how do we make it more include? It was all fine. How do we uh, expand opportunity from, for individuals who, um, from low income from low income countries as well as from in in the, in higher income countries but with low income but themselves have low income so how do we increase access to sports and recreation opportunities to to build pathways to the Paralympics and or at least pathways towards um, living a healthy lifestyle through sports and recreation then uh, then the other interest of, of interest of mine is the um, the uh, um, it's how do we increase access for individuals who the Paralympics calls high support needs, but basically individuals who uh, need assistance with some activities of daily living, and so that they could be included in the Paralympics related back to you know issues of, of travel, right? If it's difficult or impossible for you to travel, then it essentially becomes difficult or impossible to reach to the reach it to the Paralympics. But uh, one of the fun things on a positive side is uh, we uh, developed a racing chair, smart wheel, which is a device to measure the efficiency of propelling a racing wheelchair. We worked with our U.S. Paralympic Training Center at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, a couple of my former students there, uh, to test, uh, and I help optimize the wheelchair and the and the wheelchair propulsion technique of some of our U.S. athletes that competed in the Paralympic Games, and so um, and one of those was, uh, of course, was uh, Tatiana McFadden, who won several medals in the Paralympic Games. So that was uh, I, even though I know, we were, I
1: love her, I love her. You know, I I've met her several times. She is so awesome.
2: She is, yeah. She's a she's a tremendous athlete and 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 a tremendous advocate as well. So uh, and but uh, you know it's it's nice and one thing you may not know about being part of my legacy is that my uh, my coach when I was training for the Paralympic uh, uh, Paralympics was uh, Marty Morse, who uh, it was the coach of the team at the Universal of around in Champagne. So. Of course, he had to coach me from a distance, but uh, so I do have a a little bit of a connection to the uh, to the Illini's, who have been um, tremendous con- contributors to uh, to wheelchair basketball and to wheelchair uh, athletics. Why, probably for fifty years now.
1: Wow! No, I didn't know that. Yeah, you are definitely connected. As a matter of fact, when I see the Paralympics, I frequently think of you. I'm thinking, where's Rory? I should be seeing Rory somewhere. Hey, Rory, you also do a lot of international work, international research, and you've told me this before. But am I right that many countries, people do not have access to wheelchairs?
2: That's true. Unfortunately, um, globally, the World Health Organization estimates that there's about 100 million people need wheelchairs uh, in the world, and only 20 to 25 million of them uh, actually have access to or own a wheelchair. And which uh, So that's a, a tremendous, uh, and most of those individuals, Probably a third of those individuals that have access or have a wheelchair don't have an adequate wheelchair, so that's a a, 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 a tremendous challenge. Um, fortunately, the global assistive health technology uh, uh, committee is is working to resolve that uh, has come out with some wonderful uh, documents. On on wheelchair provision and wheelchair testing, Um, the International Society for Wheelchair Professionals has developed educational materials that that go along with that and even some uh, entry-level credentialing, which is uh, all our steps in the right direction. And and probably the most powerful thing that's happened recently is the World Health Organization has created a list of the um, essential, essential assistive technologies. Which is a guide for countries that provide aid to lower income countries um on what what types of technologies that aid should provide, which uh probably the most important part that is, about that is that there's that even such a list uh, exists and that uh, that um it takes actually a step further from the um National Declaration of Human Rights of People with Disabilities that was um, passed by the UN. Uh, to actually start to operationalize that. So um, there's still there is a, a tremendous uh, tremendous amount of work. Uh, fortunately, there are um, there's a growing number of people that are uh, uh, where that work has come to their attention and they started to address it, but. Um, you know, we we really need, as um, I think, as people, you know, uh, people with disabilities globally need to to bond together to work to help each other, because the uh, the issue of the shortage of wheelchairs is is really only a only a symptom. There are um, there are shortages of many types of assistive technology in the world, and there are also many uh, forms of of disabilities globally that are preventable uh, if people had access to adequate um, health care and adequate um, energy and sanitation and living conditions.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, uh, you know, one step at a time, but wow, so many people, so many people. And I, uh, what can any, what can someone do to help? Right. any of our listeners, what could they do to help?
2: Well, uh, there's lots of things they can do to help. Um, you know, the simplest thing, um, you know, it's, uh, you've, you've been involved in enough not-for-profits to know, uh, you know, donate your time, your talent, or your treasure, or all three, or all, any two of the three, uh, to a... Uh, to an advocacy or a, uh, or a service organization working with people with disabilities. And, uh, um, and, you know, you and I both do that. And there are some great organizations out there, uh, among them, such as Easter Seals, the World Institute on Disability, um, uh, you know, Paralyzed Veterans of America. So, um, and, uh, so, you know, I think just uh, pick, pick any one of the, uh, you know, pick an organization that's closest to your heart and, and find a way to get involved. Uh, and then the easy thing that all of us can do is that, is one, if, uh, is, well, is to, when you encounter a person with disability in any setting, is to uh, first see their humanity and see them as people. And, uh, and through that lens, um, when you have the opportunity, uh, then create uh, avenues for them or pathways for them to, uh, to get a, a, a broader, more meaningful education, to have employment opportunities, to, uh, to participate in our communities from a wide range of things, such as transportation to all the way to, uh, to voting, you know so um i think I think if we can um i think if we can and then I guess the other thing is, is vote right, and vote in ways that uh that that health support um, support people with disabilities become more visible and more included
1: oh, that is. That is so true and great message. I just want to say that if you were listening and you think, oh, I wish so-and-so had heard this, remember, you can subscribe to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender on Spotify. Uh, these shows are all on demand and you know, just let people know. But thank you so much for being with us today, Rory.
2: Joyce, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and Thank you for all the great work you're doing. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's tremendously important, and it has a broad-reaching uh, and wide impact.
1: Oh, yep, we're in it together, that's for sure. And with that, I'm going to end the show with a quote. As you know, we end every show with a quote, and today it is C.S. Lewis who said, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. This is Joy Spender, America's voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. And in the words of the great Mary Brocker, choose joy. <laughs>